while his road went down, back then to his throne and crown. You are the Father's Son, who in flesh the victory won, by your mighty power make whole all our ills of flesh and Shines in glory through the night, darkness there no more resides, in this thine faith now abides. Please stand. The Father sing, glory to the Son our King, glory to the Spirit The text for the sermon this day is taken from that gospel lesson, specifically these words. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That is the text. You may be seated. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. question could be very easily asked. Why is that the gospel lesson for the first Sunday in Advent? That is the gospel for Palm Sunday. And in case you did not know, it is not spring right now. And we're not getting ready for Easter. We're getting ready for winter and Christmas. And yet, the tradition of the church is to read the Palm Sunday account on the first Sunday of Advent. It has been this way in the historic lectionary for who knows how long. In the three-year lectionary, which is what many of the other churches follow, they will also be reading this gospel lesson today. They read it every three years on the first Sunday in Advent. So the question is, why? Well, first, there's a little detail that's kind of a neat little connection. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. How is it that Mary and Joseph very likely got to Bethlehem? By a donkey. And I don't know if you, but, and also, some breeds of donkeys, I don't know which breed it is, one of you might know. But I understand there's a breed of a donkey that on the back of it is a black cross in the fur. So there's kind of a neat, interesting little connection between Palm Sunday and Christmas. But there's another reason that this is chosen for now. Because this tells us so, uh, tells us what kind of a king we are anticipating. What kind of a king it is that comes to us. I mean, think about all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, to the Proto-Oyangelion, the first gospel, where God says to Eve that her offspring would bruise the head of the serpent, 
and the serpent would bruise the offspring's heel. And then jump forward to Abraham, where he's told that he'll have as many offspring as there are stars in the sky. Now one might assume that that is supposed to be coming through Isaac, but in reality, Isaac is a type and shadow of the, the offspring that the Lord was speaking of. Go all the way to King David. And David has promised that one of his offspring would have a kingdom that would have no end. And it was not Solomon. Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted on his throne. Surrounded by cherubim, by, around ser, by seraphim. And then in the very next chapter, he's given the prophecy. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the prophecies of the Old Testament, the prophecies regarding the Messiah... You would expect that the King of kings and Lord of lords would be born into nobility, into royalty. Maybe not born of, not a son of Herod, because Herod would probably kill him given his record with his own children. But he certainly might, you would expect him to be born of some type of a king, some type of a governor, some type of an emperor. Or maybe he'd be a son of one of the priests, or the high priest, or a Pharisee, or a high-ranking Sadducee. Instead, he is born of a teenage girl. Somewhere between 13 and 15 years old, he is born of Mary. Born into a family of poverty. We know this because... When Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple, their dedication is to turtle doves. The only people that were allowed to donate doves or bring doves as an offering at the temple were the poorest of the poor. If you had any level of wealth, you were required to bring a sheep or a lamb. So Jesus is born of a teenage girl into an impoverished family. And then as he grows up and he goes around teaching and preaching and doing these miracles, increasing his popularity ever so much, and the day comes for him to ride into Jerusalem, the people knowing that he's claiming to be the Messiah, many people hoping that he's the one to overthrow the Roman government. He rides in not wearing glorious armor, not riding in on a stallion, but on a donkey, looking not any more special than anyone else. In fact, Isaiah in his prophecy does mention that there was nothing remarkable about his appearance. So he rides in on a donkey, on a donkey that he doesn't even have anything over it to sit on, to show his poverty. His disciples had to take off their cloaks and place it over 
the donkey so that way he could have some comfortability while he's riding on it. And he doesn't go, when he rides in, he doesn't go into the, the, the palace and tell off uh, Pontius Pilate and tell him, you're done, your reign's over. No, instead he goes to the temple. And he casts out the money changers. And for this, he creates many enemies. And it's for this that by the end of the week, he would allow himself to be arrested. He would allow himself to be beaten and tortured. He would allow himself to be crucified. See, our Lord Jesus humbled himself humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, our king is a king of humility. He is a king who emptied himself of everything he had for you. He set aside his glory. He set aside his throne, which in Isaiah 6 was massive and glorious. He set aside all the riches of everything in order that he might become human flesh, in order that he might die for you. This last summer, the youth went to the National Youth Gathering in New Orleans. And throughout the theme of the week was in Christ alone we stand. And each day there were four different themes. And there are four, th- four days, four themes. And I actually realized looking at our Advent series that the readings for Advent actually align kind of well with it. Except for I'm jumbling the order from what they did. Humility was actually the third night for Um, the the National Youth Gathering. For the season of Advent, it works for today. Because Jesus humiliated himself. This is what is happening. So again, it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. And remember, whenever you see that word humble in the scriptures, humble is another way to saying humiliated. So you should actually read it as, Behold, your king is coming to you humiliated and mounted on a donkey. Humility and being humiliated is synonymous in the scriptures. That is what Jesus allowed himself to do, was be humiliated. That you may be exalted. See, as children of his children, as we are those who are claimed by Jesus, because as I began at the start of the service, we talk about Jesus who has come. Jesus has come born of the Virgin Mary, in order to suffer on the cross and die for you, that you may have eternal life and to rise from the grave. Christ does come. Christ comes to you in the waters of baptism. 
Christ comes to you in the, the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper. Christ comes to you every time you hear the word preached. And Christ will come again on the last day to take us to eternal glory. That is the, the refrain of Advent. But until Christ comes, as we are his chosen children, baptized into his name most holy, we are called to imitate him. We are made Christians. As I've mentioned before, Christian means little Christ. You are to be like him. Jesus humiliated himself for you. That means you were called to humiliate yourself for another. You were called to be willing to humiliate yourself that another may have life. See, there was a, there was a report that came out this week about the United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom, there is a trend that parents are refusing to take their children to church because they don't want their children to be outcasts. Now, to understand the reason of this is because in the United Kingdom, so based upon averages, today in the state of Iowa, there will be more people in church in this state than there will be in the entire United Kingdom. To give you perspective, the United Kingdom has 64 million people. Iowa has 3 million. And yet we have more people in church today than they do. Because only 1.5% of the population is in church on a given Sunday. And so parents don't want their kids going because they don't want them to look different. See, we are called, if, we ever, when, if and when that happens in our country, now none of our states are even that level. The lowest level a state has is 17% church attendance, and that's Vermont. But our state, if you're wondering, is at 32% church attendance, which is actually all of our churches are pretty consistent with our state average. All of our congregations are. But when, you, when that happens to us, and here's the reality, it already does happen, that spending time with your Lord is not normal. It is going to make you different. In fact, that's the reason why our services are conducted the way they are. That's why we have all this liturgical practice for one of the reasons, we have this liturgical practice. In case you don't know, I don't dress like this everywhere I go. The only, time, okay, the only time I wear a robe is between churches, so I do look weird in cars, if anybody looks over. But otherwise, I only wear it here. I don't go about town wearing a white robe. On my, normal, on my day off, I'm not wearing a clerical collar. I'm wearing a t-shirt. And jeans or maybe even sweatpants. Because then I, I like going extremely lazy. I don't wear like this. 
We, I don't sing hymns. I don't go around chanting. What we do here is different. It's set apart. We are supposed to not feel normal. Because you're not normal by being a Christian. But if you remember Gary talking about that a couple weeks ago, about not normal. We are supposed to be willing to embarrass ourselves. To humiliate ourselves. To be an outsider, to be outcasted. Because in our culture, how many of you have ever heard somebody say this? You're not allowed to talk about politics or religion. The only place you're supposed to talk about your faith, according to so many, even in our own communities, is here. And once you walk out this door, it's leave it alone, don't talk about it. I challenge you to find one Bible verse to back that one up. Where it says, keep your faith to yourself and don't tell anybody. I do have where Jesus says, go, into, go make disciples of all nations. You are given the command to tell people of your faith. That's why you're here. You're willing, you are here to be willing, to be embarrassed, to look odd, to look different, to be humiliated. Just to tell people about your faith. Because by doing so, those who hear and believe, you have, they, they have been saved. Through you, God has delivered them life. We are called to humiliate ourselves for others. We are called to do what is not popular for the sake of what is right, what is loving. And by the way, when you know someone's trapped in a sin, it is not loving to keep quiet. That is actually unloving. Loving is coming beside them and saying, you need help. And acknowledging that you, that I, we need help. With our own sin. That's how you humiliate yourself when confronting someone in, your, in their sin. Is you have to admit your own sin. Admit that you are no better. But you're, only, you're standing with them. Because you love them. And hopefully, they'll hear of your struggle and they will do the same for you and walk with you in your struggle. Our God humiliated himself for us. Now do so for your neighbor, for others, that they may hear and believe and by believing have life. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keeping the one true faith to life everlasting. Amen. Please stand to sing, Create in Me a Clean Heart. Clean heart.